Jason the Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. No talent, but he does have great hair, which I'm envious of today as it was cold. Had to wear a toboggan coming in, and that's, uh, it's about that time. Uh, am I going to shave my head in New Year's resolution? No, I am not. I've cut the top of my head in seven years, Mike Gallagher. It will not be cut. It is going to live there. The 18 hairs that are hanging on for dear life will hang on. And then maybe when I turn 50, I'll cut it. But uh, six more years, I'll give it. I'm not sure what you would do without your twice-a-month, <laughs> seven-minute-per-visit haircut. You've got it timed out. You've had it timed out for years. I think I it's more of, business. Well, I think you're a routine-oriented guy. I think it's more of a therapeutic exercise to go. So if you were to just shave it off, I'm not sure what you would do without those seven minutes of the barbershop twice a month. What's crazy is the, the halo portion of the hair, if you know what I'm talking about, right, the sides to the back grow pretty good. It's just once you get to a certain, you know, spot on the head, it's like, nope, that's it. We've packed it in. Is that crazy? Because I think that's, like, what has happened to, like, the vast majority of people. Of people. That's <laughs> fair. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Smart guy. All right. Uh, Jay Sanders, Mike Gallagher, Sanders, I kick. I'm sure you know who we are. Uh, you're tuning in for the first time? Uh, all right. Good to have you. Uh, last night, ETSU took on VMI. Well, I guess we up the show. We're going to talk last night's basketball game on the men's side. Uh, no women's game tonight, women's game Saturday. We'll talk a little bit about that. We'll talk all things women's Southern Conference basketball. Then we're going to take a little different approach to New Year's resolution. And then the ever-popular, my favorite segment, bold predictions. Do you think it's strategic that instead of me having us do New Year's resolutions for ourselves or each other, I took us completely out of it because we can't live up to anything and just made it all about ETSU football? No, and I, we also have very high opinions of each other, apparently, by assuming that these things would happen. Yeah, so but, I uh, think this was. Smart. I'm not worked Far out. Morale. You're wearing schmediums, and you know things just happen. It, it, we go downhill. So, uh, all right. Last night, uh, what a spectacular first half! I want to kind of, not the exact quote, but paraphrase. Coach Oliver's like, you know, that team we saw in the first half, Southern Conference champions. Now, that team in the second half, ooh, that's got a lot of work to do. You know, didn't have the killer instinct, couldn't put a team away. I will say that I kind of picked up on this from Murray Bartos there, and he had made a comment many years ago, like, if you get down 15 or 20, and you fight to get all the way back, and you can't quite get over the hump, you generally don't win the game. And I know that you're thinking, well, yeah, well, rock science, you don't. But it's because of the energy you had to expend to get to that point is why a lot of teams don't. And when you first started telling me this years ago, I never really, like a lot of things coaches tell me, right? What's well, Coach Beak, or it's this or that, and I don't really believe it, but I've seen it over time with different teams, including ETSU teams and through the four, I guess five coaches if you include DeCellis um, and Shea and Barto and Forbes. Now, Oliver, I've seen examples over 20 years where that's true, and I kind of felt like that's sort of what happened to VMI. They, they expended a lot of energy. Now, the game was up and down, so I'm not sure if just the game pace took some of the legs out late for VMI. A lot of their shots, it seemed like once they, you know, they had a 10-minute stretch where they outscored ETSU by 19 to erase a 19-point deficit. First half, I think they just missed some clean looks that probably they don't miss on a normal day, and ETSU was able to go up 17. Second half, they fought back, got some steals, got some layups. Stevens was able to get to the rim and cause havoc. But really, other than a couple of shots here and there by Manns, you know, it really wasn't a spectacular shooting performance overall by VMI to their standards. Now, they hit 12 threes. On most nights, everyone's jumping up and down, but they're averaging more than that. And so I guess they kind of got to their average, but still – I felt like the legs at the end of the game was a big deal, and part of that I felt like because they had to expend so much energy to get back in the game. Usually I buy into that theory when a team can get within like two, three, four, and can't tie it, but they tied it at 63, and that was when I was kind of like, oh, 
I'm not sure how this one's going to go. But then Mohab Yasser, who all of a sudden was shooting the ball spectacularly last night, I mean, he was 25% from three coming into the night and knocked down a couple of uh, important triples. Uh, went three for eight in the night overall, but eight points off the bench, and he continues really to be TSU's premier sub, right? As a true freshman, he is someone you can rely on, count on for maximum effort, and does he get emotional on the court, too? He, he had the and one off the steal, swipe and score and one, and he just put his shoulder right into Trey Bonham as he walked by him after finishing that. But that big three to put it back up to 66 to 63, it did seem like for a lot of the game, not the whole game, because as you said, over an exactly 10-minute period, as you pointed out to me, 18-22 to 8-22 in the second half, 19-point deficit erased. But for a lot of the early portion of the second half and then it seemed like later on as well when the Bucks kind of took control again, when VMI had what seemed like a momentum-changing play ETSU answer, like even Matt Nunez, congratulations to him on his first collegiate points. Like it was a seven-point game, and the Bucks missed a shot, and you're like, oh, geez, this could be four or five. But then Nunez with his big paw up there swats it into the basket, gets his first score of his career. And so that was a big one, and Yasser obviously putting the Bucks back up. Um, so I, I agree uh, – to an extent, but it proved last night uh, that even, you know, if you can get into the tie, that there is still work to do it. It's almost like when they tied it up, there was an exhale, like, oh, we made it. Well, you can't exhale because, yeah, you're back to even, but you still got work to do the rest of the game. I am 100% with you on the general way that these things work out. Down big, boy, do you have to expend a lot of energy, and it seems like more often than not, teams just run out of steam, and while it wasn't before they were able to tie it up, they never did take the lead. Um, despite an unbelievable effort from Jake Stevens. I don't know what you – oh, yes, he was incredible. I, we'll talk about him in a second. I, I want to stick a little bit with the, the team and the scoring and everything first, and then we'll get into what I think he deserves some, some talk because of how great he has turned around his career. We're going to turn around just as he's improved, right, over the, the last couple seasons. But I was shocked that with seven seconds to go, VMI shot a layup. Yes. Because – all intents and purposes, I know you're trying to stretch the game out as long as you can, but in that situation, it was like, okay, and yes, I realize the three's harder, but if he didn't take the two seconds to go dribble, <coughs> excuse me, and shot the basketball, it probably been about seven seconds. And then he would have got the perfect scenario of it's a three-point game. Now you get the uh, score pressure come into play. Sloan missed it. Now maybe he would have made those two in a different scenario. We don't know, but let's just say, sake argument that he misses that. Now that three-pointer at the end of the buzzer, with no timeouts, is tying the game as opposed to a one-point deficit. So I was very shocked. And I'm usually for shoot as many layups, try to make them hit free throws, extend as long as you can. But at a certain point, when it's a two-score game, you know, I think you do have to wield off that. So I don't know, judging my Coach Earl's reaction, I don't think he wanted the freshman to go do that, but it was he was still coaching, so it was hard to tell. Because as soon as the bucket was in, he was like, hey, go foul, foul, foul. You know what I mean? Like he immediately, it kind of looked like he was kind of, you know, moving his head left to right, like, hey, I don't know if that's what we're doing. Oh, hey, you know, you got to get right back in it. So um, his guys fight like all the academies do. You know, that's the one thing you know you're going to get. I thought Bonham, who was quiet in the first half, made two spectacular defensive plays, got an and one on one of them, got another layup on the other, and I thought was just – he brought a little bit of that energy. But when Mans, <coughs> excuse me, hit the three to tie it up, and roughly 20 seconds later – Yasser hits the three. There was a little bit of a deflation, I felt like. And I know uh, VMI got a layup, but the Bucks were pushed to lead back to six at that point. But it just it felt like there was, like, 
we've tied it, there's an eruption, and the guy we're not expecting to really shoot a lot of threes knocks down a triple right in front of us. And I think it was a little bit of both. It was a little bit of we just tied it, we've got him on the heels, oh, my goodness, we'll let this guy shoot, and he hit it. And you're like, ugh, what do we do? Well, and to your point about late on in the game going for layups, the possession before that, they did that too. Kerfman off the inbounds pass. Daniel had to call that timeout with 20 seconds left because that possession was going nowhere. Everyone was just standing outside the arc, and you had 20 seconds, and he was just seeing the time tick away. you got to do something. So he draws up a play for basically it's just a give-and-go. Inbounder gave it to, I think, Stevens, Kerfman to Stevens, and then Stevens just hands it right back off to Kerfman. Kerfman tries to turn the corner on Ty Brewer, who was long, athletic, lengthy, and it didn't work out. He ended up with a really tough scoop shot from, like, six feet and couldn't make it. So it was strange twice down the stretch to try and – I get going for the easy basket, but with how they play, very off-brand for uh, BMI – Bonham has been unbelievable in the second half. Last two games, he hasn't scored in the first half. He's got 26 combined points in the second half, 16 against Furman, and then 10 against DTSU. Um, that VMI team that we saw last night, and what really tells me who they're going to be is the fact that they were able to mount that second half comeback. That's not the same team that ETSU has been accustomed to beating the 12 times previous that they had beaten them, beaten them consecutively. So it's now 13 in a row, but the VMI team of old folds down 17 at the end of the first half. And maybe not folds. That's probably the wrong word because, you know, you're thinking an academy and maximum effort and general gets the most out of his players, there's no doubt. But I don't think they make it all the way back. You know, they had that little bit extra. That being said, um, and this was interesting to hear, you know, Desmond Oliver postgame talk about how the game unfolded for ETSU offensively. You know, you have Ladarius Brewer in the first half have 19, and he thought that he – got a bit tired because you're asking him to do just a ton. He said that he guarded four positions. Well, there are a couple of times that I saw him on Jake Stevens, <coughs> excuse me, on the defensive end. So that would make it five positions because Stevens obviously is playing center whenever he's out there. He said it was one, two, three, four. I think he guarded the five as well at some point. So that would be all five positions on the court. Um, so he gets tired, so says Coach Oliver, and doesn't score in the second half. You're like, oh, where's the offense going to come from? And then David Sloan steps up, and as he typically does, right, I mean, offensively, um, just more aggressive in the latter portion of that second half. Um, those two were able to carry the box offensively, and Jordan King had you know a nice start to the game, but then kind of got cold, and Jaden Seymour had a nice start, and then he wasn't really involved a whole lot. Yasser comes on. So it was really interesting to see how the game was split in terms of scoring for the Bucks, and I'm not sure you can count on that every game, right, because – Typically, things aren't going to work out as perfectly. You're going to have guys go through longer dry spells, and if one guy lets up, it's not necessarily going to be another guy that just picks up right where he leaves off. But it was fantastic last night to see Sloan have, and we know this about him, sometimes it's to a fault, but he has that killer instinct, right? When he sees that his team needs something, he hit the big shot uh, at the Naples Invitational to win against, was that Murray State? Missouri State, Missouri I can't State. Missouri State, and then he hits the big shot at Georgia. He's the guy down the stretch, and he sealed this one up. It wasn't one shot, but it was over a longer period of time. Um, a, a team effort, maybe not so much in the traditional sense that you think, right? You think, okay, well, we're sharing the ball, and everybody's touching on every possession, and, you know, there's a score by Sloan this possession, and then it's Brewer, and then it's the other Brewer, and then it's, you know, King, and then it's Yasser. It wasn't like that. It was more just guys and spurts, which was kind of unique. I thought – you know, it's the one thing I like somewhat about the team is that 
you know, yes, it would be great if you had a big three and every night guys are getting you 17 a night consistently all the time. But the problem is when one of those guys go down, then generally you can't, lose, you can't win a game. The fact that there are, I'd say, five legitimate scores and then a couple of guys that could get you double figures or has gotten you double figures. Yasser's gotten double figures in the game. First of all, let's go with the, the – including Charlie Weber, let's say, the, the previous starting five. Um, Charlie Weber's gotten you double figures. Obviously, the Brewers, Sloan, and King can get you double figures, and three of those guys have got you over 20 points in a game. Um, you look at Charlie Weber's gotten double figures. Seymour's gotten double figures. Yasser's gotten double figures. I mean, you start looking. There's there's eight guys that can do it. Avani Patterson's he had a double figure game. Uh, you know, that's the not first game of the year. He had a lot. Okay, so even so, to the point, like yes, there are times when a guy like that can get you double figures. The question is, can can they produce like that every night? So if a guy has an off night, like I enjoy that Ty Brewer didn't get out of his game because he took five shots, right? Other players who think they're at a certain level, if they only get five shots and watching everybody else shoot the ball, get shot envy, get point envy. We, I can point to many of the ETSU players. I don't want to, but I can, of guys, if I said their name, most of the Buck fans would shake their head and go, yeah, yeah, he would. Yeah, okay. So Ty Brewer didn't do that. He continued to try to play defense. He continued to rebound. He had 13 boards. And the rebounding, I thought, yes, it was disappointing. They didn't have more second-chance points. But the big difference between Georgia, Chattanooga, and VMI was the lack of boarding at Chattanooga. And I don't know if some of it was because the foul trouble was Seymour or uh, foul trouble in general. They had a couple of the guys that have three fouls. But I, I'm not sure what. But the if they can get the effort on the glass – They've got enough guys that can score. Yes, I would like to see Ladarius Brewer not have 19 in one half and not score in the other. But at least he was being aggressive. He only took a couple of threes in the second half, I think, as opposed to, you know, when he missed a few, continuing to shoot threes. He was still trying to get to the rim, got to the paint. I thought one time he probably got fouled, didn't get called, but that's fine. It happens. So, and it wasn't an egregious play, so I'm not upset that there was no foul call. But I thought he did a good job of trying to get – his shots off. I thought Sloan in the first half pulled a couple of from the S and the U of ETSU, fired some threes I, you know, I wasn't in love with. But in the second half, he kind of kind of refocused, turned it on. And honestly, you can almost – I can't look at Ladarius and tell you what I'm going to get out of him. But I can look at David Sloan at certain times and go, boy, he's about to be really good. And there's just a certain faction. I think what happened was, and Sloan is this way, when Bonham got the and one and flexed on him, and then said something to him as he walked by at the free throw line. That was a different David Sloan from that point forward. And Sloan's that guy. If his teammates yell at him, if his coaches yell at him, it doesn't seem to bother him. You know, he plays through it, cool-headed. The second he gets challenged, his manhood gets challenged, all of a sudden, you know, he's all in, buddy. And, and, and you know, there are a couple times I can point to where maybe it got a little too personal and he, he probably didn't play his best. But so far this year, when it's turned personal, he's put the team on his back. And he made smart plays. It wasn't just that he was able to score late. There were a couple. I mean, he led the team in assists again. There were a couple passes he made and a couple plays he made, smart plays towards the end of the game that I thought were incredible game-changing winning plays. Talked to Dan Earl before this game, and he mentioned that his team is just not turning people over enough. They're playing good defense, but what they're not doing is getting turnovers, getting those, I don't want to call them easy stops, where you don't have to defend the entire shot clock and you're able to you know, maybe get a run out or two easy baskets from the defensive end, and I think you saw turnovers play a big factor in this game. ETSU is 12 nothing in points off turnovers at the half, and that's been a big key for them at home. In their five wins now, doing the math quick in my head, 
they are plus 46 in points off turnovers. 90 to 94 to 44, plus 50. In their one loss to North Carolina A&T, I think they were like minus 21. It's like 27 to 6. Like it was absurd. So you've seen that split be a big issue. Turnover margin BMI is not good, right? They just don't force enough. Um, I think they're bottom like 30 in the country or something like that. And Last night they just couldn't force ETSU into those mistakes. There were a couple there in the second half, but it felt like because they only turned over twice in the first half that those were – big, giant mistakes and that they were coming, you know, like a landslide, right? Well, there were only seven on the game, and the Bucs turned the nine turnovers that they forced VMI into because VMI does take care of the ball pretty well, um, despite the fact that the turnover margin, the turnover margin more comes from the fact they just don't turn opponents over. But those nine turnovers that DTSU forced turned into 16 points. You mentioned a post game. They capitalized on pretty much every one of them. While the seven turnovers ETSU gave away only turned into four VMI points. And Dan Earl said he just doesn't know if guarding – the way that they are and playing that tough, you know, matchup zone defense that they are without forcing turnovers is sustainable. He, he just doesn't know. And I think last night we saw a little bit of that. And on the other side, keeping in mind that ETSU only shot 38% from the floor, they've got a ton of shots because they dominated the offensive glass. And of those 21 offensive rebounds, like nine came on two possessions. I mean, they had six chances on one, and then I remember four on another. But on the other side, while we can say, oh, ETSU only shot 38%, I think that's the first time we've seen the Bucks really start to play the system and have it manifest the way Desmond Oliver has wanted. We've heard him talk about postgame with you many times, like, look, we're cool with shooting 35 38%, you know, whatever it is, getting up 35 threes, 30, 35 threes, whatever it is, and shooting a lower percentage, but more going in, then that's okay. And, and that's what we saw last night. Like, you look – at the numbers at the end of the game, you're like, well, VMI shot 45%, ETSU shot 38%. How in the world did ETSU win this game? Well, firstly, it was very close, obviously. It came down to a razor's edge. In fact, a Kevin Kerr from the three that should have made bad beats if it did not on Scott Van Pelt's show uh, because the line was two and a half. But you look at the amount that ETSU was able to shoot it, 10 more shots, right? The two teams combined for 83s. ETSU made one more than VMI. Um, and so it was interesting to finally see that because until – I see it more often than not. I'm just like, I don't know. Is that really going to work? Well, when the Bucks crashed the offensive glass, got the second chances, and didn't convert it into a ton of second-chance points, only eight, you'd like to see that number be higher. But they, to your point from earlier, I think wore VMI down with that. you got to then defend another 20 seconds. And then it's another 20 seconds. I'm sure Bruce, Bruce hammered that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> did. But it's to your point as well. I mean, that is demoralizing. It can just drain you. And I think in the first half it did, especially when you had that six chances on one possession. So it all kind of worked together. I think Dan Earl saw some of his worst nightmare come to fruition. I'm not sure that we can defend without turning the opponent over at a high level for extended periods of time. And for Desmond Oliver, it was the exact opposite. It was, you know, uh, the system from heaven that's come down to earth and it's in Freedom Hall for the very first time at its best. I don't understand why it's not a stat in basketball, but time of possession, I think, is a thing. And I realize some styles, just like football styles, right, a three-back offense is going to be more than Sanford's spread. So sometimes you got to throw it out. But I bet if you looked at the possessions yesterday and the guarding time of VMI to what Bruce talked about, with I'm sure at nauseum with you, um, being a former player who would give up rebounds and then have to guard again in his day 45 seconds on a shot clock. There was no reset to 20, but 
that one possession took over a minute for ETSU with the six offensive rebounds, and that's just in today's game, that's just different. And the style of play VMI wants to do, plus ETSU was accomplishing what um, Desmond Oliver wanted to do, which is get 75 shots or more, 75 possessions or more. They had a lot more than that because they had 77 shots plus 15 free throw attempts. So if you're looking at close to 90, give or take, possessions, but if you had a time of possession last night, I would venture to say that ETSU was on offense 25 minutes of the game and VMI was on offense 15 minutes of the game. And I think there is something to that because if you're not turning people over and you're constantly letting shots get off or letting people get to the free throw line or giving up offensive rebounds, that does take a toll on people. And so I've often wondered why it's not, and I get certain instances why it doesn't matter, but I would argue sometimes in football, you know, depending, especially in college, which is a pro football where everyone is similar in style and you've only got, you know, 46 guys on game day available, there, there's a whole different animal in the pro scheme where college, some people, they don't care if they have 10 minutes of offense or some teams want 50 minutes of offense. And so, and they've got, you know, at the high level, they got 85 guys are rolling out there, you know, that are scholarship plus playing, playing a few walk-ons. So I, I think there's something to time of possession in basketball. I wish I could see it, but my guess is, is that there was almost eight to ten minutes more of guarding and defense and trying to figure things out for VMI. Really encouraged, started the game, really thought the energy of the crowd. I mean, Desmond Oliver was confused about the free chicken. I had explained that to him last night. <laughs> yes. And he was like, nah, nah, how does this work? What, what did I get? And so, you know, we explained it to him, and, and I was like, there's a reason why it was like a 5-3 game people are going bonkers because there's some free throw attempts and you're probably going, why, why are they so loud at a 5-3 situation? Right. And so, I, you know, I didn't tell them, but late in the game, I will say this, since that promotion has started, I, I may have, you know, yelled at uh, the head coaches that walked by me to say, hey, I just want to bring it up, but, you know, we're up 15, there's a few seconds to go, and that guy's a 43% free throw shooter if you want to make the people happy here and get a little hack in. So we did that at Wyoming where Kevin Brown looked at me and said, should I really go tell them we're going to set an NCAA record if they if they don't give up a made field goal here? I'm like, yes. He said, should I tell them to foul? I'm like, yes. So he went and told assistant coach Brooks Savage, told Steve Forbes, fouled, and now an NCAA record, which only lasted like three weeks that year, and somebody else bested that. So that being said, I'm not above it for free checking for the people. That, that, that's what I do. And that's one of the best free throw shooting teams uh, in the league. In America. In America, that's five, true. Yeah. They were, um, uh, yes, top five, you're correct. I think they were fourth. And – the guy goes up there and clangs two right off the bat, and you're going, boy, free chicken. It's amazing what the free chicken is. When Fletcher McGee did it, yeah. I have faith that the power of the people and the chicken will win out. That's that's, that's my take on that. Um, seven turnovers on the offensive end. I thought that was tremendous. And in the Bucks, I thought they would have more assists. And um, I'm going to blame the stats crew and Kevin. I'll give more out. No. I'm also mad that it's not the NBA. I talked about this last night because there were several passes that led to a guy with a clear path to the rim who got fouled, and you'd make free throws on it. Well, in NBA, that is an assist because you led to points, but in college, that is not an assist. And I'm not a huge fan of all rules NBA coming down. There are some rules I do like. I've talked about them on the show a different times, but that is one rule I'd like to have changed because David Sloan would have had about two, three more assists if they would have had the rule change where he can get an assist where he gives the ball up to somebody who gets fouled. And I did have a question about Matt Nunez and uh, Isaac Fair about those guys having to play with all the situation. You know, with COVID out, would the NCAA make a 
special case if this is the only Matt Nunez sighting of the season and because guys get back. And I, I, I didn't, and obviously I don't know, but I do know everyone in the country is going to go through some of these stretches. And I do know there are some teams that play eight just to get the game in and play, you know, walk-ons or guys that want a red shirt. So this is not just unique to ETSU. And I think if enough of that happens, and if you go to it and just say, okay, everyone, let, let's come up with a formula. And it's going to screw somebody, right? It's not going to be perfect. But if you say, you know, if there are somebody played three games or less, or let's use football, it's four games. You do four games or less, and you only play because guys are out with COVID protocol, and you can show that he was out because that's all documented. You can show he played because of COVID protocol. I would like to make a pitch for everybody in America that they would be able to keep their redshirt. But that's me spitballing, assuming NCAA would do something like that. And they've already given everybody a free year, so I don't think it'll happen. I'm in the camp that says I think the NCAA wants to do as little as possible in every controversial situation and wants to not do any work at all. So I I think that that might be a little bit of a pipe dream. But I like where your head's at because it's a good point. I mean, you didn't have... Isaac Farah, you didn't have Cordell Charles, you didn't have Charlie Weber, you had nine with your walk-on and Cameron George. And you know, if it's Cameron George, obviously you want to play your scholarship players because you have assessed that they are going to be the ones that are going to help you win more than the non-scholarship players. So, yeah, you have you know eight scholarship players and one that has not played yet. So, yeah, very interesting, uh, very interesting thought. Uh, my final bet on it is just a good win, uh, especially considering you did have only the – Eight plus Cameron George, um, you uh, are going up against a team that I think is going to do some things that are a bit unprecedented, at least in terms of recent history for VMI. Um, they were going for the first three and zero start last night since 1976-77 uh, in the Southern Conference. Can't get it, but which is a year before they made the Elite Eight run. Just to put that in perspective, they made the for sweet, and they made the Sweet Sixteen that yeah, year. Yeah, and the next year they went to the Elite right. Eight. If my math's right. Yeah, and so. Uh, Obviously, a team that is off to a good start. They had some bad losses early, lost to Presbyterian twice, and some others where you kind of raised your eyebrows and said, uh, what's happening to Daniel's squad? Maybe this is going to be the regression after a historic year. Um, but they haven't done some of the things I think they're going to do uh, in their program's history in like 20 or 25 years. I think they're a top-five team in this league, especially considering how wide open it is. And the last thing I want to talk about is, is we – Teased it early because we wanted to talk about them. We didn't talk about him. But Jake Stevens, the turn, not turnaround, I keep using the wrong term, just how he's elevated his game over the last several years. Definitely progressed. Gotten better. And anytime I think you walk in any building and go 29, 15, I think a couple assists, three blocks, yeah. something else, two turnovers. But he, he, he was like, you know, Matt Rafferty at Furman. It's not unusual for those guys to, to up there and assist. Now, you know, Coach Oliver called him one of the best players mid-major in the country. I just want to pump the brakes on that. Bruce Tremarker said he'd get NBA looks. I'll pump the brakes on that. I, pump the brakes I, on that. I, I am a big fan of what Jake Stevens has been able to do and how he understands, knows his game, doesn't panic, and, you know, knew certain times in the game, shoot the three if I'm open, make good skip passes, get guys clean looks, and when if they're going to not respect me down low, I'm going to back dudes down and hit that little baby hook. He doesn't have much of an offensive – repertoire down low, but when you're that big and you can just back dudes down, and I've watched them do it against Wofford, Furman, now ETSU, 
you know, we, it's, until somebody stops it, why does he need another move, right? He's crafty and patient in the post. You know, a lot of fakes, a lot of up-and-unders, a lot of step-throughs, and the fact that he can hit the three is great. I, I think I called him to you last night a great mid-major player. I'm not willing to say one of the best in America. I'm not willing to say getting I, I mean, I mean he's making his claim for the best. I mean, he can argue through the first three games of SOCON play, he may be the player of the year in the SOCON. Just through Absolutely. three. Now, there's a lot of stuff to happen. Absolutely. And I'm not crowning him right now. Or I'm not Denny Green. I'm not going to crown him right now. But I'm just saying through three games against the three opponents that he's yes. played, you could argue he's right now the best player in the league. Yeah, there's no question. Um, he is, without a doubt, a great mid-major player. I think that he does have, you know, two speeds to his game, right? Um, and then – in reality, has actually one speed to his game. But the two speeds, quote-unquote speeds, uh, figuratively, are camp outside the arc and then go down into the post. Um, the one literal speed he has is slow. He is not fast. Uh, and, and that's what, something that I think would hurt him if he was ever to try to go to the next level. But um, he does rebound. He is huge, right? He's put on so much muscle, and that's one of the things that Dan Earl always says about Jake Stevens, is that he has just worked and worked and worked, and that's the kind of guy that they want at BMI. So, um he does a number of things exceptionally. I mean, he leads the Southern Conference in blocks, too. So it's not to denigrate anything that he does. Um, I believe it a great mid-major player. Rapid reaction. Chattanooga wins at Wofford. Shocked? No. Okay. Mercer wins by three against Sanford. Oh, shocked. Shocked Sanford kept it that close, yes. Uh, did Quez Glover play? Do we know? Uh, I do not. Okay. Uh, I can look that up while I ask sure. you the next question. Yep. Furman, four-point win at UNCG. That sounds about right, especially considering the final is 58-54. to 54. That's exactly the type of game I think UNCG is going to want to play this year, but the fact that Furman pulled it out doesn't surprise me. Uh, 23 points for Glover, so yes, he did play. Uh, okay, so then that is probably about the right score line. Then. And it does appear, um, I've, I've reached out to as many people as I can, and it does appear that Alvarez may be done for the year. Oh. So for Mercer to be in it with three or to win by three yeah. out him and go against Maybe Glover, surprise, I, yeah. I, I think that would be. And then the last in Western, a four-point win at home against Sydney. Uh, all right, would, would, would this know. also shock you? <laughs> Chattanooga was an underdog. Were they really? Sanford was almost double-digit underdogs. Furman was a three-and-a-half-point underdog. And Western at home was a four-and-a-half-point underdog. Does, does any of that – all of those. And all the winners. All all winners. And a couple uh, – I mean, Sanford, I guess, lost it. They're the one team that was underdog that didn't win, but they were like 10 a points. handily, yeah. I mean, I realize FCS line sometimes we laugh about, but all those last night when a buddy of mine who's a degenerative texted me and was like, are these right? I don't watch a lot of Southern Commerce basketball, but isn't Chattanooga good, isn't it? Yes. Sanford beating a couple teams and they're getting yes. – I mean, there was a couple, and I was like, I mean, yeah, it's, it's – Looks to me, but I, you know, I also thought, you know, um, West Carolina wouldn't be my last year, last week of football. So what do I know? So don't, don't ask me anything. It's like I know the league more, better than any. But I was shocked uh, by Agreed. some of those. Agreed. All right, let's talk a little women's basketball, Southern Conference style for this time out. Sandy Sidekick on the back of the air, Sports Network. You'd be amazed to learn what one Tennessee lottery ticket can lead to. For you, it could be lucky, but for others, it could open the door to so much more. With more than six billion dollars raised for education. The Tennessee Lottery has proudly funded over 1.5 million scholarships and grants. That means, on average, more than 130,000 Tennesseans every year continue their education just because you play. The Tennessee Education Lottery, game-changing, education-benefiting fun.
basketball, there is not any tonight. You are not driving down to Macon, Georgia. Is your heart broken? And I'm no. devastated, absolutely. Five and a half hours to and from. Um, I think I'll be all I right. have made that lonely ride. I've told you many times because my wife went to law school there, and there were plenty of decisions on Sunday night. Do you drive home late or Monday morning at 4 a.m., suck it up and drive straight to the office? And I did both, and I don't know there's a great one either way. And last year, me and Kevin, after the big win, we're like, you know what, we're going to get a hotel. We're just going to power through. And we were great till we got to about Asheville. And there's an hour left, and we're just like, oh, we're dying. This yeah, is that climb of the mountain oh. is difficult. And there's darkness. Yeah. Nothing. And around this time of year, there can be, like, some ice and things like that. Like it's, it's we were fun. watching. That was interesting. We did go to, like, the North Carolina DOT, NC DOT, and all these, you know, Department of Transportation to see if there was any updates, just to see if there was anything dicey. And for that night, there wasn't. But we also almost got stuck playing Mercer coming back on New Year's. We won on New Year's Eve and got stuck because the road was closed on the interstate and finally opened it back up. And we actually celebrated New Year's coming down the mountain, in which we played Mercer like a 1 o'clock game that day. Mm-hmm. So it should have been back. So I've been on both sides of that. Anyways, you're not disappointed. You're disappointed, I'm sure, that uh, Simon Harris uh, is getting four ladies back and being able to try to play a team with a uh, full complement or, or whoever's eligible to play on the roster now. But in the same token, his t- first two road games, I'm sure he's happy about this with the other schedule he's played, are going to be against the two toughest teams in the league. Yeah, unfortunate that obviously the Bucks got COVID, and then as it turns out, Sanford got COVID too, so that game wasn't going to be played Saturday anyway, but Thursday and Saturday are not going to happen for the Bucks. Hopefully everybody in the program's all right. I know an assistant coach got it and then a player, and then it kind of snowballed from there. So uh, thoughts with all of ETS women's basketball as they work their way through something that it just seems like we cannot get rid of and is still ripping through all of college basketball. Um, we're going to go through all the SOCON since there's no game to break down tonight, no game to break down Saturday. Uh, we did this Monday with men's basketball or Tuesday whenever we release a podcast. Go back and listen to that. It's a breakdown of each team. It's presented in order of my preseason poll, and it's updates on how the it's, it's only. And I would like to preface this: this is Mike Gallagher's ranking of the teams, nobody else's, which I enjoy. Yes, uh, yes, that's exactly right. Um, well, I mean, you look at some of the coach and player or coach. In, in fairness, me and you are fairly close every year on our thoughts, yeah. so we, we like to. There's a reason that I focus on mine and not the coaching media polls, just to be honest. I like, mean, again, I one of the media polls had ETSU pick first. So yeah, I, I, yeah, go. Okay. Uh, Sanford is the team that I picked to be number one. This is kind of as big of a surprise as any around the SOCON so far. My league champion in the preseason poll hurting with a 5-9 and nine record in the non-conference as they enter league play with Chattanooga at home tonight, but don't panic, Bulldog fans. A quick examination of history tells you that the Bulldogs had these really exact same struggles last year. Went three and nine in the non-con, rallied to win the league regular season championship, playing their best ball of the year when it mattered in league play. From last year's team, Katie Allen gone as his point guard, Raven Omar. Katie Jones also departs. Michaela Woolard moves on. Those four were all outside the top four in scoring, though, for the Bulldogs. Andrea Cornoyer, Manny Rammel. Natalie Armstrong, and don't forget Shantae Battle, who went down early in the year with a season-ending injury, back healthy this season. That's a dynamic top four. They're joined by Penny's sister, Olivia, who was originally a Georgetown recruit, though she is playing a kind of marginal role so far this year. And 6'5 center Emily Bowman in from Vanderbilt, though she has not played. Those are kind of their two top two recruits and transfers, it seemed like, but they're not needing a lot of help. Uh, they did get a bad break before the year started. Kaylee Sticker tore her MCL and ACL in practice. Clemson transfer out for the year. They could use her because Natalie Armstrong has missed some time recently, as she did at the beginning of the year as well. It has been a difficult non-conference. Four of their nine losses, though, are to Power Fives. But despite that, is there cause for concern with Armstrong on and off the court? And so far, Annie Rammel performing kind of like a shell of her former self, just five points per game so far this year. The nice thing is, as we mentioned, there's 
four as a four-headed monster. So even if one or two are not performing, you can always rely on the other two. I'm not concerned because as we've seen on the women's side, and again, I talked to Simon Harris during the coaches show, I think the biggest problem on the women's side with upsets is because of the two extra scholarships. When you can sit on 15 players instead of 13, there's no trickle down. Think about it, two players on all the power fives, the 60, what, five teams, 64 teams that are in the power five, you add in the other seven, right, group, because that includes Connecticut and Big East and some of that. Now you're talking, you know, it's a 214 players, give or take, are going to move down. And those 214 players, I think, would make a difference in making some of those power five versus mid-major games a lot more competitive. That being said, that's why I don't really – I judge the men a little differently in the Power Five than I do the ladies. And some of the non-conference records, if you look back, even at some of the good Chattanooga-dominant SOCON teams, not very good in the non-conference. So I don't put a lot in the non-conference. They've got a lot of firepower. I think they'll be just fine. The question is, is everybody going to get games in? I mean, three of the four games scheduled for today has already been postponed. There's one for Saturday. It's still in flux. So... Who knows, you know, and if that's the case, then as Western or Wofford just throw caution to the wind and say, look, we'll just we'll just stay here and play another day and get another game in just to get it in. Or they're only two hours or an hour away from each other. Why not flip it and go the next night? But that being said, I no panic in any of these teams you tell me, non-conference if there's a lot of Power 5 losses. Now, there's other teams that don't have a lot of Power 5 losses. they got some mid-major losses. I will tell you we're going to panic on later. I should clarify, as you said, that Sanford has, as we talked about, COVID. So they were scheduled to open. Conference play tonight with Chattanooga, just like ETSU was scheduled to open conference play tonight with Mercer, and UNCG was scheduled to open conference play with Furman. None of those are going to happen. And two games Saturday already postponed, ETSU Sanford and UNCG and Wofford. Mercer, I had second what looks to be right now the best team in the league, judging by the non-conference. You don't want to put a lot of stock in it, and I totally understand that. Mercer has been the one team, I think, that if you were to look and say, if we thought they were going to be good, Looking at the rest of the league and where Mercer is, maybe Mercer is the team that I go back and revise and say they would be my league winner. I'm not going to do that because it seems like Mercer under Susie Gardner are always going to have pretty consistent results. There was the one year, obviously a couple years ago, they had a big mass exodus, and that was the outlier. But they're always maximum effort. They're always going to lock down. Like Susie Gardner won't let you take a play off. So. The fact that they have excelled in the non-conference maybe doesn't surprise me, but it also does, I think, bolster the case uh, for those that thought Mercer was going to win the league. They're sitting pretty right now. Still have their top three from last year. Maury Neil Tyser, Shannon Titus, and Jaron Doherty uh, from their NCAA tournament appearance. They also added a really talented point guard in Jada Lewis last year from Georgia State. That was a big difference maker, and that really pushed them over the top. Those four combined for nearly 90% of the Bears' points, still very top-heavy, but that fourth player made all the difference. Not back from that team last year, the NCAA tournament participant Jill Harris, who played some quality minutes at guard for Mercer Sierra Scott, who appeared just once. Emily Stradling, who played just 58 minutes all season. Kiana Barkoff, who averaged just 6.5 minutes per game as well. And then Lewis, that's obviously the big double-digit per game score and assist leader, their biggest loss. Uh, Naomi Van Ness also gone, their tallest player. Really the only question that needed to be answered coming into this season was who was going to play the point, who was going to replace Jada Lewis, and not a bad replacement. They bring in India Banks, who started 92 games at Miami over her four years with the Hurricanes and scored in double figures 12 times last year. More importantly, led them in assists last year and had a plus assist-to-turnover ratio, a steady hand at the point guard position. She has indeed been their fourth scorer their top distributor, and they've got a sharpshooter this year, too. Aaron Haupt 
shooting at 45% from outside. The only team to leave the non-conference in all of the SoCon with a winning record. And the only questionable game I would throw out there is the um, – Oh, no, I'm sorry, I read it wrong. I thought they lost Tennessee State. I was going to crush them on that. But, no, all the all the losses you can look at and go, okay, Wake Forest, right? We talked about Power 5, lost Georgia, lost Alabama. Middle Tennessee, if you you should know, because most of the people in this podcast are in this state, that is a usual women's basketball power. And in Central Florida, it's pretty good women's basketball. So they lost to five teams they were probably underdogs to, and they beat everybody else they should. So they're exactly where I think they should be. I think they're kind of cooking. Titus is ridiculous in all facets of the game. 17 block shots, 25 steals, 7 boards, 10 points. I mean, just a workmanlike effort. Haupt is the only one that shoots the three. That would be my concern. Right. Everybody else struggles. Her 45% is pulling everybody over 30%. Uh, the only other one that's barely over 30% is Jaron Doherty, but she's only taking 19 attempts. So 6 and 19, which isn't bad, right, because she doesn't shoot it a lot, 32%. But they're just – the outside game, they're going to have to live inside. They've taken more free throws than their opponents, you know, They've got out-rebounded, but if you go back and take out the Power 5 games, they're a plus 6 on the glass. So I think I had Mercer 1, Sanford 2, and we you know, we were right there. on. They're the two best teams between me and you, and they've done nothing to take away me having them as the favorite to win the league. Maybe that big 3 of Mercer is thriving a bit more than the big 3 or 4 of Sanford at the moment, but I'm excited for those matchups when the two teams do meet. Wofford, I had third, lost just – one from last year's team was a big one. Jamari McDavid, team leader in rebounding, third in the team in scoring. But they still have Lily Hatton, the freshman of the year a couple of seasons ago. Ended up leading them in scoring last year and finished as one of the top three-point shooters in the league. Jackie Carmen returned and struggled with efficiency last year. Shot just 29% from the floor, 23% from outside. Was their second-leading scorer, and her efficiency is back this year. 43% from the floor, 39% from outside. Seems like she has literally and figuratively gotten her feet and legs back under her after that knee injury freshman year. A lot of people say that it takes two full years rather than the one full year. You can come back and play, but you're not 100% until that second season. She's kind of proving that theory right. Naya Lutz, who killed ETSU last year, is red hot from outside the arc this season, hitting at 44% from deep in the zone for the Terriers. Helen Matthews and Aaliyah Harris, who split point guard duties last year, they're back, but this year it's Reagan Rappert, a freshman that's playing so well for them at the point guard position, leading them in assists and steals. So there's a lot back, and with the new point guard supplying some solid play at the point guard position, a recipe for success, but all that positive, and we have to say the results haven't really come yet. Five and nine, the record, just two Division One wins. I think this is a team I know the least about going in for the non-conference. They play, they muck it up, they, you know, it's – it seems like every year they struggle to get one or two players in double figures. Right now they've got one in double figures, and that's Jackie Garman. You look at Lily Hatton, Nia Lutz, they're at 8.49. you got seven points. I mean, it, but they're going to score 64, 65 points. If they can keep – and I know they had the one outburst against ETSU last year where everybody seemed to hit shots and they got, you know, in the 80s or something. Double overtime. And they don't, that's right. But still, that game's going to be low. So if – they can't stop teams, then they are not going to be that successful because they still seem to have trouble scoring the basketball. But that's a team where, like, just like their, their football team, right? They're three back. They want to control the clock. They want to play, you know, all 30 seconds, try to get something going. But Pre-Josh confidence. Yes. And <laughs> it's fair. So I, I don't I, – I think they're going to struggle in the league, and I had them middle of the pack, and I think that's probably where they're going to be. I think three still may be a bit high. Um, 
But defensively, they're, they're still good. I mean, you look at some of the numbers, even playing Power 5 when they're giving up 64 points a game. I mean, even playing some of the big boys. So I feel like that, you know, defensively they're going to be there. My, my question is, can they score enough, you know, day in and day out in the league to, to pick up enough wins to get them in that three slot? Because I, we're in agreement. One-two is booked, right? Yeah. You don't see anybody. Free-for-all after that. Yeah, okay, I agree. Okay. Uh, and my poll has gone off the rails with Chattanooga at four, who are off to an absolutely atrocious start. Seemingly always at or above 500 by a game or two. This year, though, they're off to just a brutal beginning. Uh, words I know you love to hear, obviously. I mean, I picked them eighth again, so if I make you any better. <laughs> their leading scorer from last year, Ebony Williams, was slated to return on their roster until the very latter stages of the preseason, but she moves on, leaving Abby Cornelius to lead the squad. And She's done so well, averaging nearly a double-double. Only players that are gone from last year's team outside of Williams are Anna Walker, Liz Wood, Bria Dial, that's a big one, Kelly Searcy. Between Walker, Searcy, and Wood, they started just one game, so no big problem there. But Dial, uh, definitely a glaring absence. Second leading scorer, most threes made on the team, second on the team in blocks. Coming into the year, I told you I really liked Sigrid Olofstadter, national team experience in her home country of Iceland, but still just kind of a marginal impact offensively, and they could use some impact offensive players. No transfers and no real size came in, so it's a lot of the same bodies as last year, except without Dial and Williams. And if you just looked at last year's team and took out Dial and Williams, you'd probably expect a team to really be fighting an uphill battle, and you'd envision, what, from 15 games, maybe like two or three wins? Well, that's exactly what they have. They're 2-13. And, and they can't score. I mean, I think getting the loss – you know, in the preseason was deadly. I mean, I, just a killer, especially no matter who it is, whether it's an injury, whether somebody leaves. Somebody it's just a, you know, you go in and, and rather just use tissue men's basketball as an example, whether you feel like it was going to be a game changer for a decade, there are certain things that he did and, do, and would do that would help the team, right? And maybe it's not all scoring and rebound. There are other things that are lost. Well, if you lose somebody – that late in the preseason and you don't have a chance to replace anybody, it's just difficult. So I think Chattanooga got hamstrung early. And, you know, I had them – I really didn't have them eighth. I had them about fifth or sixth. But that being said, they're going to have a hard time right now unless they turn some things around. I mean, they're, they're barely scoring 59 points a game. And I think, you know, unless they get Wofford in a 59-55 game, then I don't know how many wins they're going to have if unless they can get somebody like Olaf Starter, who I agree. I've also kind of touted her, made her doing the TV side, the player to watch, you know, trying to figure out, like, you know, is she going to make that leap up and be the difference maker? And she's had shots. They're just not going down. So I feel like this right now, and I never thought I'd say this, Chattanooga is going to have to really fight hard to get out of the cellar. And I never – on the women's side, thought I was on the men's side. I say it a lot, but on the women's side, I thought I'd never say it. ETSU fifth, again, not looking great now. But keep in mind everything that they have had to deal with. For those that may only tune in when conference season arrives, here's a quick rundown. They already lost a large amount from last year's team, from transfers and those that did not return to the program. Throw that on top of Makaya Dowdell missing the year as she raises her first child, which she gave birth to in October. Then the season starts. And your impact transfer, Jayla Roberts, along with Kaya Upton, one day no longer on the team. In the midst of that, you lose a promising transfer into Maya Griffin to a lower body injury for the majority of the non-conference. Then after the Upton and Roberts situation, you have Debbie Burdick, Carly Hooks, and Jameer Houston all of a sudden not on road trips. They miss three games, and you're having to play with eight, four of them true freshmen, three COVID freshmen, and then Amaya Adams. So obviously it's been difficult, one in 12 the record, ten losses in a row, going into what was going to be uh, tonight against Mercer and 
I think once conference play comes around, whenever it comes around for ETSU, you're going to see a more together team, a more complete roster. Slated to come back tonight were Demi Burdick, Carly Hooks, and Jameer Houston along with Demaya Griffin. And Yes, that's not only bodies, but like listen to the talent there. Griffin had shown in her couple of games that she could really be someone that could lead a team offensively. Um, Burdick has more skill offensively than she's shown. She's going to play a bigger role, um, I think, when she comes back. Carly Hooks, obviously, the team's leading scorer from last year. Jameer Houston, a Miami transfer. Uh, we know what Enya Banks has done for Mercer as a Miami transfer. Houston was just starting to find herself and then wasn't with the team for a few games. So I think this is going to be a different squad once conference season comes around. I mean, they have to be better with the players they get back. I mean, obviously, Roberts is gone. She was on a player with double figures. But with Hooks, Griffin, Houston, and I know Burdick only was averaging three points, but that's, that's 26, 29 points. I think 29 points of the 55 they're averaging this year were out of the lineup during that time. So certainly I think getting them in the mix is going to be huge. Plus, there is an upside to getting some of the other ladies on the floor. And so if the post play was really the big question, right, because pretty much it was Ja'Kai Davis had to roll with everything. So now having – extra help with Griffin, with Houston, and some other. I, I think ETSU, and maybe I am wearing the goggles here, but I feel like they are going to show much better in the Southern Conference play than they did in the non-conference because of all the things and all people not here, people not doing the right thing, people are back. I'm just getting this cohesive unit back together. Uh, coach said it Wednesday, so I'm not breaking anything, but he said once everyone did what they're supposed to do and what we expect of them, they're back, better attitudes, everything is what, you know, he's expecting. So that gives me confidence in that they are going to sneak up on some people because people are just going to look at records and some other things and go, eh, you know, not going to take them seriously. And I think ETSU can be able. And it wasn't like for a lot of games, I mean, take out the Tennessees and some of those, but some of the other games, it wasn't like they were getting run out of the building with just eight girls. So now having, you know, four scholarship people back, I think they can't help but be better. Yeah, I agree. Furman. Furman. My team. I had after ETSU. Generally a 500 team right around it. They yeah, were if you say anything ill about Jackie year. Carmen, I'm jumping I would never. I would never. They've been exactly 500 in league play really every other year on average over the last decade. So as we hit league play, what do you think the record is? Yeah, it's 500. Won five of their first seven. Now they've lost five of their last seven. Uh, they're three gone from that team from last year. Maddie Griffon. Taya Hunter and Selena Tabor, and she was their only real inside presence that they had last year. That a prime concern entering this season, though their top three scorers are back in Tierra Hodges, Sydney James, and Tate Walters. Walters and Paris Kevy Coilia, uh, their two scorers, or two main point guards, I should say, are back as well and leading the team in assists. Grace Van Rye is doing a bit more scoring this season. At six foot two, she's taking up that big gap left by Selena Tabor and shooting it at 52% from the floor this season, so she's off to a good start. Uh, all in all, I guess I'm surprised, and all in all, I think Furman fans have to be happy. I think we look at your and my preseason polls. You had Furman higher up than I did. Uh, you had Chattanooga lower than I did. You had Wofford lower than I did. And right now, through the non-conference season, thankfully you said the non-conference doesn't matter. You look great. <laughs> well, and if I had to book anything, right, it would be the Titans. If, for 20 years, you could book the Titans at 500. You could book Furman at 500, and I just feel like that's exactly – Nothing has proven me wrong. Now, do they have a couple years where maybe they're a game over, two games over, one, two games over? But very rarely has Furman been last in the league. Very rarely has Furman won the league, right? So I think they're just going to be 
the typical Jackie Carson team, they're going to fight, they're going to crash, they're going to claw. They're going to find ways to win half the games that they play, and they're going to be middle of the pack. And I refuse to be convinced otherwise. Uh, I skipped UNCG. They had a really tough season last year. I predicted this would be the biggest jump in the league, so I'm kind of going towards the standings last year now because they finished seventh. I had them finishing fourth this year. Um, they no longer have Corey Powell. She's gone from last year's team. Their third-leading scorer. Rihanna Council also gone, but was their lowest scorer on the roster last year. Tori Tyler gone, but appeared in just 13 games. Reserve center Lillian Azundu gone, just two and a half points per game. They sported a young up-and-comer last year, Khalees Kane. She returned with her top two scorers and CeCe Crudup and Pernilla Sorensen. Much like Shantae Battle for Sanford, an impact returner back from injury. Don't forget Spartan Aja Boyd, 11 points and 7 boards per game with the team high 40 blocks two years ago. Those numbers not quite there yet. She didn't make her debut until a couple of weeks into the season. Hasn't been all of herself yet. And, in fact, Boyd, Kane, Sorensen, and Crudup haven't even really been the story. It's been freshman Isis Grady leading the team in scoring and coming in second and rebounding, while Jalen Brown went from scoring 81 points all of last season to already having 114 through the non-conference year. Still, all that to say, they've lost eight of their last nine. Many of those close losses, but the record four and nine coming into the year or coming into the conference year. And the fact that I forgot them and put them seventh in our breakdown instead of fourth, like I, I did in my preseason poll, is maybe representative of where they're headed. Yeah, and I, I, I expected more out of UNCG, and I really felt like they were kind of turning that corner, right, and getting much better. But obviously they had the uh, – Aja Boyd, right, last year was out. So getting her back, I would have thought for Trina Patterson, would have really turned some things around. But they have just struggled as of late. And it's just so tough sometimes these non-conference to tell. But some of the teams they lost to, Elon – UNCW, USC Upstate, Presbyterian, Gardner-Webb. So you're just looking at some of them that you would think, if you're taking the step forward, maybe not going to win them all, but there's some of those you should clip off if you're going to be the upper half, I think, of the Southern Conference. And so they're training in the wrong direction, and I don't know. I'm just shocked. I mean, Boyd coming off injury, eight points. CeCe Crudup I thought would be averaging more than five. She's not. So there's a lot of, you know, glaring things. Crudup shooting 28% from three, barely 30% from the floor in general. I think they got a lot of work to do. Um, I, and it, I, nothing uh, that we've talked about, I don't feel confident about anything we've talked about yet that I can sit here and tell you they're the third best team. I can tell you who one and two are. Agreed. I can't tell you who the third is. I could take a stab at four or five teams that could be the eighth, and then after that, I'm telling you, it's a flip a coin. Until till they start playing and some results come in, I, I'm totally clueless on what to expect from three through eight. I don't think that three is going to be Western Carolina, the only team we haven't gone over. Improved in little bits under Kylie Hill each year that he's been there. I think they'll improve again this season. And, hey, they won three of their last four, their first four, three of their first four. Since it's been a grind, though, losing seven of their last ten. But they do have some pieces. Nadia Marshalls, Noria Cruz, plus Kyla Allison back. Timber Motes, their fourth-leading scorer and their most veteran player also, is with Kylie Hill this year in Cullowee. Uh, the one thing that with that group that has hurt uh, is that Allison has only been able to play in one game. So that's opened the door for Vanessa Odwa, transfer from Barton Community College, to come in her first season with the Catamounts and lead the team in steals, get some extended minutes, contribute in the way that she can. And Endia Holiday as well. Transfer from Jones College that's seizing this season, shooting 58% from the floor in her 12 appearances. So without the six-foot Allison out there, a lot of Holiday and Odwa 
have tag team kind of down low and on the perimeter to fill her shoes. Um, again, I still think there will be marginal improvement. It, it's how far can they go each season because at some point, I don't think that time is now, but with every coach, the clock will be ticking on Kylie Hill and how much improvement can they make. Six and eight in the non-conference, I mean, not bad, right? It, it was just a couple of years back when winning six games was considered a major success at Western Carolina. So I think that Kylie Hill has done a fantastic job. Just the big question of how far of a gap can you leap in one year? I think the hard part is you look around the league and the number of teams that are averaging under 60 points is glaring, and that's usually not been too much of a problem around. I mean, there's one or two teams that obviously pride themselves on getting the game kind of low-scoring and ugly, but not for a majority of teams. They really want to get, you know, 60, 70 points a game, and that's the thing that sticks out. Now, they've got some wins over some teams I just mentioned a second ago that other teams haven't beaten, Presbyterian, Charleston Southern. Um, they did lose to Asheville, which seemed like a lot of other teams did beat Asheville. So I, no idea what to expect. They also have just Marshall's the only double score or double-digit score they got. I think – I'm. And this isn't bold, but I don't. I think Western will get out of the cellar this year. Now I don't think they'll be, you know, third or fourth best team. But my guess is is Coach Hill is doing some things, turning some corners, and I think he will not be in that eight slot come Southern Conference tournament time. There it is, women's basketball, team by team, player by player. Who's back? Who's not? Outlook going into conference season, which does, I guess, still officially begin tonight, even though three of the four games have had to be postponed because of COVID, but. There is the one game to watch out for, so do enjoy that, Southern Conference Women's Basketball fans. All right, when we come back, we're going to go a different take on yeah. New Year's resolutions, bold predictions, all that more. Send a sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead, investing in our community today, and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero-emission electric vehicles, Harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power here for you. One, two, three, Academy in Johnson City and oh, try, to pant, try to pants the referee. I mean, oh, I where, where do you video. feel the the resolution versus the pants go? Uh, well, let's see. First, here's a little shot. <laughs> Retain <laughs> Billy Taylor and other key staff members for ETSU football. These are all ETSU football New Year's resolutions. We had George Quarles on the show on Tuesday, and he already has accomplished his first New Year's resolution. We have seen on Twitter, I'm not sure if the official release has been out there yet, but we have seen on Twitter. Matt McCushion, Brian Stork saying that they will not be back with the People staff. have, have almost announced uh, themselves yes. more than even the offense coordinator. Uh, what you get. Yeah, uh, I think the big one was Billy Taylor, right? And so I think the number one question we were getting after he didn't get the job. And I think the response 
you've seen on Twitter, Facebook, social media from the fans. It just shows why it was so important to retain him. George Quarles talked about it here on this show, why he thought it was so important. But to me, great coach, tons of success, an alum that fans love, someone familiar to the players that are here. Um, everything made sense, and Coach Quarles fought hard to keep him here. And he did that. He accomplished that. So first New Year's resolution, you got to be impressed because it's only six days in. It's already done. I know that was a big sticking point because the usual don't break something isn't or don't fix something that broke or whatever. Right. Right, whatever it is. And I think it was interesting to hear him talk, and I think the sit-down interview I did with him was going out today, and I asked him about play calling. And he said, I'm not going to call plays. Like, I need an offense coordinator. I, I think I need to be – working in college for a while, I, there's so many things you need to be concerned about that I'm not going to call plays. Well, if you're not going to call plays, but you want to run a certain offense, we bring an offense coordinator. Well, if everybody else has got relationships and coaches, you know, it's not like they're married to a system, right? So I think so far he recognized the defense is great. I think even several times to me and you said it's the best in the Southern Conference. He's the best at what he does. Well, you know, why wouldn't we try to keep him? What can I do to – keep him here plus he's a buck right so most of the defensive staff you know we'll see if they're here or there if they are all here then you have to feel pretty good about a players staying we'll get into other stuff later but I think that's one thing the second thing is I will be shocked to see if there's a ton of turnover because and I don't know this but it would be since he's not going to call plays he's not doing a lot he's bringing somebody else in and I mean coaches coach right they take different jobs under different systems it's what does the head guy want? What does the coordinator want? All right, let's teach that technique. Let's teach this play. Let's teach this option, whatever it is. So I think if he can hold on to most staff and not have a lot of turnover, see where that goes. And then if somehow that's successful, we keep the ball rolling. If that's not successful, then there's a chance to see more more changes moving forward. Do you want to talk about the new offensive coordinator? I mean, he put it out there. So himself. That, that, that's, yes. Um, you want me to start? Do you want me to start? No, go oh, ahead. You want me to start. Well, the first thing that, that I did was go straight to the stat sheet, right? And um, how do we say it? Is it new, new Bauer? You're the voice of the okay. voice. Uh, well, I've not met him yet, and I've only seen it on Twitter. There's no pronunciation you got on there. So, um, first thing, he was an outstanding quarterback himself. Uh, played North Allegheny High School, set a lot of records at West Virginia Wesleyan College. So, I've done some research on the guy. Um I've got calls out to people who have access to other film things that I don't to try to grasp the offense and sort of what he wants to do. Listening to um, Coach Quarles talk to me about it, basically if people are familiar with what Coach did at Marable is similar style, which for people that don't know, that's a lot like probably Jamie Chadwell in Coastal Carolina, maybe a good way to word it. So they'll go spread, they'll run out of that, quick passes, they'll do RPOs, they'll outside zone it. Um, there will be some option element, which will be interesting. How much will they have? Now, it's not going to be a flex bone. He, he went out of his way Thursday to tell me that was because Coach Hendricks had the Air Force influence, and he thought you had to have the flex bone in there because Air Force is so multiple and different things. But Coach felt like that's tough to install with everything else because it's just more things that if you're not good at and you don't rep it enough, it's hard to be good at. So already won me over no flex bone because you hear a guy coming from Furman or Waffer or something like that, you're just concerned about Kennesaw State. You're like, oh, my gosh, you're going to run that. And I think ETSU is not built for that. But I think looking at Coach Neubauer's numbers, um, they led the league in uh, passing. They were 
uh, second in rushing. I think they averaged 330 yards passing. They averaged 130, 40 yards rushing. His play calling was about 52 pass to run. You know, and I'm guessing some of those were RPOs where they could have went either way depending on, you know, the look of the defense. Coach Corals told me, yes, he would like to be balanced like everybody would, and we'd like to, you know, throw it and run it. That doesn't mean that, you know, it's maybe 50-50 or the yardage is exactly 200 to 200, you know, because the passing could be 300 yards and rushing could be 150-200, but we ran similar plays. We're accomplishing what we want to do. So I will be curious um, to see how much – you know, the truth is, nowadays with high schools and how they're running stuff, depending on the terminology and stuff, my guess is a lot of high school kids probably ran more of this style than the pro set under center taking snap than what you saw from Randy Sanders, and that was a big change plus terminology. How simple will they make it? Is it simple? There's a lot of questions there, but if you look at his numbers as a player, look at his numbers as a coordinator, and sort of the style of game that he wants to play, I think Coach Corals has talked to Billy Taylor about, you know, certain games you need to speed it up because the defense is playing well. There's certain games where, hey, we can't figure them out and you need to slow it down, and I think that's sort of the approach you're going to do. So hopefully we'll have more when these guys get here. Maybe maybe we can try to get some interviews around the spring game, um, you know, especially with the new OC just to kind of get his feel. We certainly know Billy Taylor enough. I don't know you know, when he'll want to talk and speak or what he'll say or what he's willing to, to do. Obviously, he's here. Obviously, you know, he would be here if we weren't going to be happy. So, can he keep his staff, right? I think the biggest one on the defensive staff would be Steve Brown for me. I think you would want to keep what he's done to the secondary and the change and what those guys have been able to do on the back end has been great. And then there's other coaches that have been around for a while with Coach Taylor. You know, will they be able to keep that, you know, Coach Blevins be the kicking coach again, special teams. I would assume his resume speaks for itself to begin with. So uh, it will be interesting to see, you know, how – it always is when there's a coaching change, right? You always want to see what is the style of – even in basketball, what is Coach Oliver going to do? He's going to play – what does that look like, right? Well, we're going to do this in uh, the offense, but what does that look like? So spring game, spring practice, all that is going to be, uh, I think, very, very high, and hopefully it will be one of those where – you know, will it be allowed to be attended? I think that would be the thing. Sometimes it was sort of a soft, like, you know, players, families, this, that, and other. Coach Sanders didn't really want a lot out there. We'll see what Coach Corral's approach is to that. But I, I know this, unless we have, and I'm sure we probably will because it always seems to fall on a baseball or something weekend where we got to cover stuff. Hopefully it's not a jam-packed weekend and we'll be able to go watch it. So with the new offensive coordinator being, well, naming himself, I suppose, um, and if you believe be, him on Twitter. Everything will be named, I believe, later today. But if it's just McCutcheon and Stork that are out and can't confirm or deny that, I suppose, at this point, because they have been the only ones that have volunteered that information. But obviously with new offensive coordinator, that now leaves the previous offensive coordinator in a bit of limbo, Mike Rader. So there's, there's four things we know for sure, right? Billy Taylor is back. We have a new offensive coordinator. Line Titans coach have said they're out. <laughs> because they have all said that Coach Taylor didn't, but Coach Corals offered up that information. So those are the only four for sure that we know. Be interested to see if Mike Rader is on staff at all, decides to stay, has come to an agreement, is looking elsewhere. That will be interesting because he has ascended in his time here to offensive coordinator. And now you're looking at a situation where if that position is taken, where do you go laterally? Well, there's really no lateral move you can make, so you can only assume that it would be then a downgrade, a regression to maybe what he was doing before. And 
is yeah, he going to be happy with that? Coach, right, yeah. Wide receivers coach, right. So is he going to be happy with that, or is he going to go elsewhere? And maybe some of this stuff will take some time um, to work itself out. Uh, so you may see it later today or whenever it is released, people that are on that list that maybe are not going to be here for the long haul. Second, here's his own shot. <laughs> Probably not talking <laughs> Trayvon Shorts out of the portal since he has offers from no every shot. program that is any program. And, and nor should he. Let's, let's, but, but he gave us everything he had. Good for you, young man. Go, go do something. Correct. And I went back to try to add up exactly how many offers it was. He had deleted all the quote tweets and all the retweets and everything, so I, I couldn't see it. But it was anywhere from like 20 to 40. I mean, it was an absolutely absurd amount with some SEC programs and Group of Five, Power Five. Uh, it was wild. So knowing that he's probably gone, the one name in the portal that you look and could be maybe in the in-between, and this is where maybe Billy Taylor is able to influence some things in keeping him. So speaking of a win-win, maybe a win-win-win and the fact that you can look at Donovan Manuel if you're Billy Taylor and say, hey, you know, the offers maybe haven't been exactly what you thought. I mean, I saw Ball State, Miami of Ohio, Ford International. <laughs> New Mexico State hasn't run in like 30 yeah, years. Yeah, programs so. that aren't exactly names at the FBS level, if they're at the FBS level at all. And so you come back. You know me. I know you. We can do something great together. And here's the thing. He's got two years left. So the selling point to me, if I'm talking to Donovan Manuel, which I have not, I've seen him in the hallway, but of course I'm not going to tell him anything, is you can come back for a year and do it again. So if you come back and you're going to be the focal point, right? I mean, you shared a little bit of limelight with Jared Folks. Folks got a lot of attention because he's an eighth-year guy. And, and he played well, but also he's an eighth-year guy. So now you're going to be opposite Stephen Scott. You've got your defense coordinator back. You get Austin Lewis back. You know, if you can get Steve Brown back, and the back in the secondary is going to be ridiculous. I have faith in Coach Brown. I mean, why not run it back? There's not a lot of turnover. Yeah, they're going to do some things offensively, but you know you're going to be on a winning team. You know you got a chance to be the guy, defensive captain, make something. And then you can put your name back in the portal the next year. There's no rule on what you do. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm okay with guy leaves, and it's a huge step up. Trey Montreal, great. Good for you, young man, especially if you gave us three or four years. Donovan Manuel's given us plenty of years. I would hope that seeing everything that's happened and the offers that he has, because it's one thing to be the lead guy at ETSU, try to make plays, try to make a name for yourself, but there's no guarantee he's not going to be the third, the fourth linebacker at those schools. I mean, even if they tell you, like, Sonia, you'll start right away, let's be honest, you got to get up there, you got to do it. And if you're the leading tackler in New Mexico State, I don't know – I don't know what that can do for you, but if you do one more year at ETSU, you win again, you're the team captain, you're getting all the accolades and things that Jared Folks got, I think with some extra numbers you would be able to put your name back in and get better looks than that. That would be my take on that. Third, New Year's Resolve shot. Since you're not bringing in a big class, and this is what George Quarles talked about very openly and honestly on the show on Tuesday, he said he thought it was probably going to be five or six. And keep in mind at the early signing period, I think it was, what, two or three? Is that, I'm remembering that right? Like, you know, I think it was, it was two. Three, two. possibly, but it was for sure two, whatever it ended up being. So you're looking at a recruiting class in total of less than ten, not even double digits. And Coach Quarles talked about how COVID has kind of thrown a wrench into things. You're not going to have as much turnover, at least we hope, in the coach transition. But across college football, you're not going to have as many people graduating, leaving with that extra COVID year. Now there's kind of a logjam, right? So bringing in a ton of people – a doesn't make sense, and B probably doesn't literally add up in terms of the math you're doing on your scholarships and such. 
So knowing that the third New Year's resolution is retaining the talent that you have because you look at the talent that's out the door, there's a lot of holes to fill in terms of guys that made big contributions. Maybe not literally a ton of positions that have to be taken up by others, but the talent and the production that was on the field, you need to find answers for. And it sounds like most of those answers have to be in the roster right now. And it'll be curious to see because just because right now there's not a lot of movement, which is good, you get to spring practice, that'll be the next, well, maybe position coach. If all your position coaches stay the same, you got a good relationship, most guys stay. The other thing I would point out is it also depends on who leaves in the, the portal. You know, if guys are already third, fourth on the depth chart and you have the same position coach and then you start running the new system and it looks like you're still going to be third or fourth, well, those guys are going to leave. And that's, you know, trying to, you know, maybe they go down, maybe they go to different plate, whatever the case may be. I think it's who leaves, right? If, if a majority of you are too deep after the spring game is like, yeah, we're out of here, and now you, you don't have a lot of time to replace people. And there'll still be people in the portal, right? There'll still be guys unsigned and you can feel. But percentages say after spring game there'll be a couple guys go. Because it is. The question is which guys, right? Is it guys that were going to be key contributors, or is it guys that just, hey, you know, after spring practice, even with a new coach, probably not going to get in. I need to, you know, I need some time to find some place, start over in the fall. And I think that's a win-win maybe sometimes for everybody. So don't know that answer, but if George Quarles can keep a majority of the two deep or guys that they're expecting to come in and make plays to stay after the spring game, that will be a major win. And especially as we already talked about the previous player, if he comes back with them, certainly feel real good about uh, the next season. Or New Year's on the low shot. Identify your offense and get it into everyone's hands ASAP. And obviously with the new offensive coordinator, it may take a little bit of time as he comes in, sits down with Coach Quarles and says, look, here's what I want to do. And Coach Quarles is like, well, here's what I want to do, and I'm the head coach. And where the input comes from, where they meet, um, how well they're able to work together to get that formed, and then making sure that your key players that need it right away, mainly of Tyler Rydell, your quarterback, right, the, the guys that have to do so, so much in order to make it go, you're looking at kind of a compressed offseason already because you made it to the FCS quarterfinals. Then you change coaches even more compressed. Then you're bringing in new offensive coaches and a new system even more compressed. And, and all of a sudden you're looking at probably a situation where you've only really got six months to put it in, have people understand it, and then have it be successful for a team whose expectations are high. I, all of that. Um, how quick can you get the install? How complicated is it? We know Randy Sanders was big on verbiage, big on checks. You know, every play had basically a run-pass check. And sometimes it was just play design to go to the right, it's going to go to the left, or there's a pass out of that. I mean, so he asked a lot of the quarterback pre-snap, blocking all this. Without seeing the offense at all whatsoever, it's hard to speak on right now. But if you're looking at RPOs, that's reps. You know, getting reps, quick decision. If the RPO is read the linebacker, the linebacker comes down, you throw the slant. If it doesn't, we saw that at Furman, right? That's, they were big, hurt ETSU until Tyree Robinson had enough and said, I'm not going to respect the run. I'm just going to cut across the field. He almost picked the pass off, and then they never ran that play again. So how much is that going to be? How much is it tempo? You know, if, it's, if there's a lot of tempo, then you're not going to have a lot of verbiage. You've got to be able to process information quickly. Got to be able to go. Now, I have faith 
that the former players can process information because Randy Sanders fed them books and books of information. So the question is, how much of those concepts carry over? Like if there's a past concept, is it the same concept but maybe a different name? Is it the same concept but there are different reads for the receivers running the routes? Is the blocking scheme going to be different? I mean, ETSU with Randy Sanders did some downhill blocking where they pulled people, traditional style, powers and traps and uh, pulling yards and all that. And certainly they ran some zone plays. So if it's going to be all zone plays, they've ran some before, but not extensively, right? Trying to get the outside zone, trying to get leverage, trying to make teams go laterally. How much personnel will dictate what they do this year compared to others? So there are so many questions. But I think the biggest thing is what you said. Like the second that you can have a playbook and the guys don't come back to the 18th, which is a little late. So how much are you willing to share with guys digitally before you share everybody's back in? But the second they're back in, right, those team meetings are going to be critical on the offensive side. And maybe maybe it's an okay thing that, that Coach Newbauer's not here yet because as soon as he gets here, he's got to get it in the hands of the coaches. And he's got to coach them up a little bit. So maybe it's not a bad thing that they got a week, two weeks to get things kind of going with the coaches to help explain what's going on. with. And the big thing is nowadays there's so much film. You can click on so many things. You can look at a you know style of play. I mean, how many times do we hear Randy Sanders say, you know, put that play in because somebody sent me the two-point play at Virginia and, you know, Vanderbilt or South Carolina Vanderbilt. And I looked at him, like, yeah, it's a good place. Put that in. And then you go. So, I mean, there's so much film and, and taking and doing that I feel pretty good about sharing with the players certain things. I think the big thing is getting with the coaches. And for the defense, right, we know what that is with Billy Taylor. Does he have to coach up new coaches? We'll see. On the offensive end, you know, who's going to be the tight end coach? Is Mike Rader the wide receivers coach? Is Gary Downs going to be the running back coach? You know, are they bringing in different, you know, like I'm assuming they got to bring in a no-line coach. Will they just move somebody over into a tight end's position? Is there a quality control guy? I mean, there's so many things to know. Does he bring in anybody, uh, Coach Newbauer, and that knows his system and goes. So I, there are so many things there. The offense will have the questions. The offense will be the thing. But it almost seems like a broken record. It seems every year the offense is always the question with ETSU, especially since the, the restart of football. Actually, the end of football, if you look at it, the defense was always kind of there. So with Billy Taylor here, I feel pretty confident about the defense and all. But you bring up 14, maybe to bring up that many, but it's like 14 great points on the offense. And I'm just trying to – break it down a little bit more, but everything you said and more uh, needs to happen. ETSC football, New Year's resolutions. First one, retain Billy Taylor and other key staff members. You retain Billy Taylor, and it sounds like a lot of the other staff members will be back. I'd say that is pretty close to accomplishment, but already accomplished. Then get Donovan Manuel back. We'll see how that plays out. Uh, not going to bring in a big class or retain the talent that you have. Even expanding on the Donovan Manuel point was the third and the fourth. Identify your offense, get it into players' hands. Let's listen to this monstrosity one more time because you'll never get to hear it again. One, two, three, four. 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 So bad. So good. One, two, three, four. It's a good thing we really love ourselves because who could love this? Just us. I have no idea. People haven't turned off the show at this point. And bold predictions are next. Shohei Otani. I don't know if you heard this yet. He's going to pitch and hit. 
plus 10 euro get a buck 20 max. That's unreal. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a soul that can stop the big three in New Jersey. That's in five, baby. Literally, the last person on earth that should ever be considered the U.S. national team is JaVale McGee. NIL stands for never in life, as in never in life will NIL be a real thing. No, you can't. You cannot show me one guy more dedicated to the university than Damari Monsanto. He will go down as one of the best to ever do it at PTSU. A newly fit Jake Sandoz will never scuff another drive in Johnson City Country Club Senior Tour. Here we come. Predictions, new year, new me, baby. Here we go. The charge can start in 2022. You've gotten 14 right, I've gotten four right. So, with women's basketball, I was going to make a bold prediction, and I'm just realizing now that this won't even make sense because we can't nope, even nope, do nope, women's nope, basketball as bold okay. predictions. So, I'm just going to do two bold predictions. Okay. The Bucks will sweep their homestand. So, they've already beaten VMI. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, it looks great. I can say mm-hmm. the first part now, the day after they beat VMI. But they're going to beat Wofford in Western Carolina, too. And all of a sudden, this season will start to look an awful lot like it is pretty incredible looking season over season. The two really do kind of run a little parallel from last year to this year. Not exactly, right? Not exactly point by point, but you have your tournament where you play three games and you have your kind of ups and downs during the non-conference and then you come in and you're wondering what the conference is going to look like and you have the bad loss to Chattanooga, right? Just bad in the sense that you lost by 30, not in the sense that Chattanooga isn't a team that is going to beat lots of teams in this league this year. But now can you make a charge like the team last year did in the early portion of the conference schedule? Remember, they won six of their first seven. They were six and one. They were top of the league. So can you do that? I think the Bucks will go down that path and beat Wofford and West. I don't know when, if it's going to be Saturday or Monday, but when Charlie Weber comes back, I'm booking him for a 12-8 and eight game. 12 points eight rebounds, first game back on the batting. Exactly 12 points eight rebounds? No, I don't know if it's exactly, but he'll have more than 12, more than eight. Yes, have both. Yes, have more than 12, more than eight. Well, Mark Bielkowski says they're not playing him until he's 100%. So if he so plays Saturday, I'm going with Saturday. Now, if he gets in and gets despairing three minutes, I'm going to lose. What are his averages? I have no idea. Let seven me, uh, and five, is that right? Seven and so you're going me. almost double. I want you to go double. I want you to go 14 and 10. 14 and 10. What's he have? Seven and five. Charlie is seven and four. Okay, so you need to go fourteen and eight. Fourteen and eight. Okay, fourteen Bye, and eight. Fourteen and eight. <laughs> I hope Bye, it's thirteen and eight. Um, NFL this weekend. Cooper Cup needs just one hundred thirty-six yards to break Calvin Johnson's single-season receiving record. He's gotten to that number just three times this season. He will do it against San Francisco and break the single-season receiving record. You're gonna love this. Oh, I know you're gonna love this. let's hear it. The Jacksonville Jaguars. Oh, baby, Urban Meyer rehired. Will. Defeat the Indianapolis Colts, who have not beaten the Jaguars in like five seasons. And so then are we going to get the tie on oh, Sunday Night Football? I, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not going to predict the tie. Both teams kneel it out. I'm not going to predict the tie, but I'm going to go the Jaguars straight up dub. Would you not love the look on the face and the steam coming out of the ears of Roger Goodell when Vegas and the Chargers take knees for 60 minutes and then another 10 minutes, 70 minutes of football to tie because they'd both be in the playoffs with a tie if the Jags beat the Colts. they got to do it. Uh, it. I don't know. I mean, 
mean, would they pull a NASCAR where they just kick people out of the playoffs when they did that at the end of one of the NASCAR oh, seasons? Yeah. Guys were just pitting to let their teammates get in and because they were already in, so they went ahead and made a ruling and said, you know what, all you did that, you're out. Like where your head's at. All right, we'll be back Tuesday, Monday, whatever day it is. Buccaneers, run that way.